0: Welcome to Tool Talk, where we discuss sound practices and stellar resources to help you rightly divide the word of truth. This is our introductory episode. I'm your host, Travis Montgomery. Really glad to be here today with Todd Skasewater, founder of ExegeticalTools.com. Todd, how are you doing, man?
1: I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Cool. So uh, tell us a little bit about Exegetical Tools and how you got involved. Yeah, sure. So about probably five years ago, right before I came into the, uh, the PhD program at Westminster, I had to take German over the summer because uh, you got you got to pass usually a German and a French exam if you're doing New Testament. So I was looking online for German programs. I didn't want to have to learn it myself, and I found one. Uh, it's called Erasmus Academy. They still do courses, all kinds of languages. Um, if you go there, to take a course, give them my name. We'll both get some money back. But uh, I took a German class with a guy, and it was all based on screencast, essentially. So he gave us homework, and then we'd come together once a month. Uh, sorry, uh, several times a week, actually. And we would go over the material, go over the homework, and he would teach us stuff. So I actually really liked this format. And I thought, hey, it'd be great if I could continue to learn German uh, by screencast. And so I started YouTubing German videos. And I couldn't find anything. There was not, there was one guy who did one video practicing translation in German. And I thought, well, why hasn't anyone done this? Surely YouTube's been around forever. Surely someone would have done this. And then I thought, has anyone done this for Greek? How about Hebrew? And so I looked, and sure enough, nobody had done this for Greek or Hebrew either. And so uh, back then, this was probably 2000, uh, what, 2012. I decided, like, this would be really a great idea to to have uh, exegesis videos in Greek and Hebrew to help people read, uh, improve their languages. And I started working on some videos back then, uh, working through Colossians, and the format was a lot different. The website was a lot different. And uh, I took a break a little bit uh, once I got into coursework, and then I picked it back up probably 2013 with a couple people who wanted to start blogging with me. And so we started blogging about Greek topics, academic books, resources, and stuff, and that got me back into the swing of things. And then we started working toward actually creating Greek series that work systematically through books in the New Testament. And since then, we've, we've done a few series. Uh, I did a couple of them, um, William Varner over in California at the Master's College, he did James and Acts. A colleague of mine, Mark Giacobi, did Philippians. It's the same content he teaches in his Greek 3 course at Westminster Seminary. So these five series are up there. We have a bunch more contracted now. And we've we've kind of expanded out into some other things. Um, uh, we've got a lot more series coming on Greek. We're trying to get into the Hebrew side of things. It's hard, though, to find people who, um, who have the technological know-how, the savvy, to want to actually do this kind of creative pedagogy online with the languages. So continuing to look for more people who want to learn the technology or already know it and want to continue to help pastors and students to uh, regain, retain, and improve their biblical languages is kind of the goal of our website.
0: That's awesome. Yeah, there's definitely a biblical languages focus. Uh, So I got connected to you, as you know, but as our listeners may not, about a year ago in Joplin, Missouri, um, hometown for you. Mm -hmm. Um, Moved here for my undergrad, both pastors at um, Baptist churches here in town. I'm fixing to make my way up to Kansas City and study at Midwestern Seminary, finish up my Master of Divinity. Uh, And so we kind of caught each other, uh, your way in, my way out, Mm -hmm. kind of a thing. Started talking about the idea of a podcast. Started talking about how... Exegetical tools has branched out a little bit from languages, although major focus on languages, to just general biblical studies, biblical theology, uh, discipleship and ministry guides. Fontis Press uh-huh. um, is a, an outgrowth, if you want to. I don't know how you want to put it. Yep, That's yep. how I'll put it of, of exegetical sure. tools and some publishing there. And really thought, you know, we could probably provide another avenue for people to bone up on their biblical studies, bone up on languages, various exegetical issues. And so we've recorded a, a few episodes already, but we're. Going to push this one first because you get dibs, Todd. Oh, well, thank you. So, (laughs) you you green lighted this project, (laughs) you you kind of started things off. And so, why don't you tell us a little bit about um, the purpose of good exegesis and using other tools? So, here here are two guys I'm thinking of um, uh, just general uh, caricature guys, but the stereotype is there for a reason. Um, There's, you know, Brother Jim, who on one hand he just kind of says, you know, I just need my Bible. In my prayer time, uh, you know, maybe he's uh, a pastor, maybe he's a bivocational pastor, maybe he's a lay person who's just interested in Bible study, and he just doesn't see the need for all these books. I mean, we mm-hmm. got sixty six of them; they're wonderful. Um, it's a lot of books. So that's a lot it's of a books. Big library. 66. That's a big library, man. Yeah. Um, or one book, depending on you know your definition of book, I guess. <laughs> sure. But we've got we've got the Bible, and we absolutely prize the Bible at exegetical tools. So let's start with Brother Jim. What's the point of one, learning languages, and two, using other outside resources for Bible studies.
1: Yeah, well, the good thing about Brother Jim, I, I like Brother Jim in this respect, that he values the primary text. Amen. He values um, coming in himself, and he wants to read the text himself. He wants to hear from God. He wants to uh, know the passage inside and out, and he wants to bring that to his congregation. He wants to soak that in prayer. He wants to try to discern from the Lord Uh, what the meaning of this passage is and how he can apply it to his people. The problem with caricature brother Jim is that uh, we see that as a lack of pride because he's going to the Lord for meaning. But I think in reality uh, it's actually a problem of pride because he's assuming that his spiritual abilities and his ability to discern through the Holy Spirit the Lord's uh, voice in his word is enough. He's, he's suggesting that he doesn't actually need the history of interpretation of a passage all the way back from the first and second centuries all the way to the present. The thousands of mature spiritual commentators who love the Lord just as much as Jim and who have commented on those passages, drawn out its meaning, people from different international contexts, uh, bishops from Africa like Augustine and all around the globe from these various contexts in which they're speaking from. He assumes that he doesn't need them, and all that he needs is this spiritual discernment that he has within himself. So exegesis is very important um, as far as resources go because it's allowing these spiritual mentors to speak to us and it's about creating a dialogue with other people. Not that everyone has an equal voice in that dialogue, because we know that everyone comes from their own biases and their own tradition and background. But it's about allowing that dialogue to happen and not being so prideful that we think that we can figure it all out ourselves.
0: That's a good word. I think that uh, hopefully encapsulates kind of the heart behind why we do this. But then let's talk about maybe a, an opposite error, a pendulum swing. Let's go us go, Brother Joe. Brother Joe. Joe. And so we got Jim and we got Joe. I don't want to give them drastically different names as if there's two you know, categories of people who would fall under this. Um, there's probably a lot of upbringing and personality elements that play into these. Yeah. Spectrum, yeah. Oh, yeah. And I, and I feel like maybe I, I, I shift between the two, so I think this is helpful for me as well. <laughs> but maybe uh, Brother Joe is thinking getting maybe just a little too caught up in... You know, secondary text. You mentioned Brother Jim's uh, love for the primary text, for the Bible, for understanding, Mm -hmm. um, and how maybe there's a pride issue in assuming he can understand it himself, and how the goal is understanding that text. What about just purely academic? You know, we just want to understand what the, the dialectic behind this was, or what was the polemic behind such and such a passage. And it's almost as if that's where the good stuff is. It's almost as if, you know, talking about. The passage itself is sort of blase, but oh, if we can get behind it into into maybe what was happening, that's where all the meat is. What would you say uh, to Brother Joe
1: and how would you encourage him? So the good thing about Brother Joe is the opposite of Jim that he he does value the opinion of others. He values this dialogue and the learning from others. The problem with Joe is that, it's not pride it's often i'm going to caricature here myself as well this isn't true in all cases but the problem with joe is laziness because uh, i'll be honest even you know i've i've been through this phd program focusing on new testament in the greek language and i do this website with greek and uh, i love greek and everything but when i'm when i'm sitting down each week to prep a sermon in the new testament i'm going to translate that in greek first unless it's like some you know several passages, several chapters long or something, but if it's a paragraph or two or three, I'm going to translate that in Greek, and that's the first part of the process, and it's actually difficult because what I want to get to is the meat, and I want to get to the application. I want to get to, like, what's the point of this passage? What's the theology? What's the payoff? And sitting there and dealing with the intricacies of the syntactical function of a participle is boring, I
0: just fell asleep as you said that.
1: Exactly. Yeah. Thank you. That's what we do here. So uh, if you ever, you know, if you're ever tired at night and you can't fall, if you've got insomnia. You can, you know, watch some of my Greek another great videos. use for exegetical tools. Exactly. Yeah. So um, it's it's difficult to work through the passages and really dig into the primary sources. So it, it's it's often laziness that keeps us from actually getting to the passage ourselves first and doing that really mental exercise of trying to. Um, discover the meaning in the text and hear from God and do everything that Brother Jim is doing. But the other thing, the other problem is that commentators disagree so much. So if you haven't worked through the passage yourself and formed your own opinions prior to consulting the commentaries, you're going to get a hodgepodge of ideas about each verse. And then you're basically just going to pick whoever you think sounds the most convincing and then it becomes a battle of rhetoric among the commentators. So who is the most persuasive? And um, as as most people know, like N.T. Wright has a way with words. So if you're reading a commentary by N.T. Wright versus a commentary by F.F. Bruce, who is so dry and dull that he will also put you to sleep if you have insomnia, you're, you're probably going to be more convinced by the rhetoric of N.T. Wright, despite the merits of their argumentation. So that's why it's important to first form your own opinions and look at the evidence yourself of the passage and form your own kind of outline, and then test your own opinions and your own conclusions against the ideas of others. I appreciate that a lot. I know that um, just coming
0: out of a prolonged undergraduate study in, in Christian ministry because of Uh, several ministry opportunities, a couple internships, things like that, and just having come through a a year of an MDiv. So I'm going to be where some of our listeners are at right now, is being a seminary Mm -hmm. student. Uh, Some of our listeners, that's very old hat, and they they barely remember those days or try to forget them or whatever. Others may be looking forward to it, maybe considering going back to school and getting that MDiv finally. But I know that one of the things that it's easy to get caught up in I'm not sure. Maybe you can speak to how that looks at the doctoral, postdoctoral level. But at my level, it's easy to get caught up in um, the pathos of the argument. It's easy to get caught up in just rhetorical force. And like you're saying, um, in any two commentators, one may write a little bit more fluidly, a little bit more uh, just enjoyably. And we might miss a a hole in the argument. Um, We may gloss over someone else who's a little more dry. And so what is the first resource. So you've mentioned going straight to the Greek text, right? So maybe second, what's your, what's your second resource when you are personally studying a passage of scripture for whatever, whether it's, uh, to teach, to write, uh, to preach, where do you go next?
1: The second, so the first place is working through the text myself. And as I do that, I guess this would be the first source. As I'm doing that, I, I'm using my Bible software. I personally like uh, BibleWorks because it's just quick and dirty exegesis. you got the bare minimum resources you need like BDAG and Hallett and uh, the Greek grammars, Robertson and Wallace, and the Hebrew grammars by Waltke. If you're doing Aramaic, you have Aramaic So you have all the, va- the basic stuff to help you work through the Greek or the Hebrew, or the Aramaic. After you've gotten through that, the next thing I'm going to do is I'm going to take all my notes that I've done in my own note file and I'm going to reorganize them. So I have all these notes, I've translated the passage. I'm going to create an outline of what I think the passage itself is saying in its original context. And then... I'm going to try to summarize. I kind of have a workflow, a sermon template. Uh, maybe we can post a link to that downloadable uh, on this podcast episode. Check it out. Check it out. We can download it. But it's it's a workflow that helps you condense from so you paraphrase the passage, summarize it in one sentence, what's the main point. And you're, it's a funnel coming down so that finally by the end, you've, you've been forced to decide what is this, the main idea of this passage, what's most important, and what is peripheral. Once you figure out what's peripheral you've decided what you don't need to talk about in the sermon, okay? Uh, unless, you know, there's obvious contextual factors. If your congregation really struggles with something or they, or you feel like you really need to bring them something that's peripheral, you might want to focus on that in your sermon. But if you're just trying to preach the main point, you figure out what's the main point, what are the main some points, and now you figure out what you need What you need to research more, right? So if you get to, let's say your your main point has a word in it, uh, let's just make up a word like repent, so that's the Metanoia Greek word group, right now so many people in um, in our congregations and even ministers and claim not single anybody out but the idea of repentance is something that you have to glean from its contextual use in the New Testament because it's an English word and it has an English etymology, and we tend to think of these theological words that we have in English people tend to get a definition of them early in life and cling to them. But the word repentance, uh, this metanoia word group in the New Testament, you go in and you do a word study now. And so you're going to use your resources like, um, for instance, I have uh, TD&T, the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament. I'm looking at them right now on my shelf. And I have the, uh, the New International Dictionary of New Testament Theology and Exegesis. There's also the Exegetical Dictionary of the New Testament, I believe, the ED&T. And there's some other word study resources. So if there's a word that you think that your congregation or that you don't even really understand, but it's a part of the the main point of your passage, then you're going to want to do a word study on that. And that those are one of the first places you're going to want to go. The um, the New International Dictionary of New Testament Theology and Exegesis is is kind of the newer resources out by Zondervan. TDNT is of course a little old, a little outdated. Has some Um, It has some fallacies that it exhibits, especially in the early uh, volumes, and we all know that kind of um, Barr came in and really hammered them for that. The later volumes are a little better. But those really rigorous exegetical resources that a lot of people want to skip over are some of the best resources that you're going to have. Of course, you have to translate that into language that people care about you can't lay out your word study of metanoia on the pulpit in front of you and read it like you would at an ETS conference. You have to make this exciting. You have to give illustrations. You have to use stories, and you have to spice it up. But just because they're boring academic resources, don't let that mean that you're going to skip over them.
0: That's a good word. Um, that, that brings up a separate issue, if you don't mind. and I, It all kind of comes under the sphere of what tools do we use when we do exegesis? Why do we use them? How should we use them? Um which is, you know, the broad theme of what we do all together at Exegetical Tools, but also in this podcast. Um, so here's a question. We are further removed uh, than TDNT from Koine Greek and its actual usage. How and why is there a new and better and improved explanation, a better theological dictionary out there? Um, as far as study goes, if people are suspicious, okay, how come that? How are we dredging up all these new understandings of ancient texts? The further we get away from them, would you mind kind of explaining the process a little bit and explaining uh, why we ought to uh, thoroughly evaluate but embrace new scholarship?
1: Sure. There, from the ancient church through the medieval period through the Reformation period, there is so much firm, sound, wonderful Orthodox theology that we can build on and we should emphasize that we're building on things we're not we're not destroying the foundation and rebuilding a new house right we have these these ecumenical creeds we have this beautiful theology from the fathers we have its translation into the mid, uh, the reformation period we have the rediscovery of the doctrines of grace or the just, justification by faith whatever we cling to whatever tradition is and we want to build on that now let me give you one example Around 1900, um, Deisman published these two studies. One of them is called Bible Studies. Um, (laughs) I was in the uh, Salvation Army in Philadelphia, just one of their stores, and I saw this hardback green book, and it said Bible Studies. And I opened it up, and there it is, Deisman. And it's this really influential work because they had discovered all these papyri. uh, I believe it was in Egypt. They found these papyri where they were preserved because it's very dry there. And it was just like common, everyday Koine Greek stuff, uh, just letters and receipts, things like that. And so he he studied the the language of these papyri, and he came to realize that the, the Greek in the New Testament isn't this Holy Spirit language that just fell from heaven. It's actually the just the common language of the people, the, the language of transaction, of commerce. And so it really is truly Koine in the sense of common. And... Uh, I, I showed that, so I came up to my wife, and I said, look at this, it, it, it's only a dollar, it's it's the book, look at this book. And she read the spine, it said Bible studies, and she thought, oh, great, you know, you found some weird, obscure Bible study book. But she she had no idea of the pearl that I had in my hand. And I was That's like, right. no, this would cost me $100, and I'm getting it for a dollar. So the moral of the story is always— so you put it back and uh, spin it on so, an ice cream yeah, cone, right? Uh, exactly, Yeah no I, I i might as well i know but it's sitting over there on my uh, my greek shelf and to look through that is is really cool because to think that prior to that we ha- we didn't have these papyri so there are discoveries in history we have this as well in the old testament with hebrew language uh, with the discovery of ugarit and all these kind of texts that we have now and we and ugarit's one of the closest languages to hebrew and so a lot of H- hebrew linguistic problems, uh, like in the Psalms and stuff, have been clarified, maybe not solved completely, but clarified by comparative philology. And th- it's the discovery of all these texts from in the 1800s and the 1900s especially that have given us a better understanding of the Greek and Hebrew language as a whole and of individual lexemes as they are, so that when the fathers and those in the Reformation, they're building their theology on words, right? Well, if we can have a better understanding of words, words like justification and words like salvation and repentance, and these, these words that are especially theologically charged, we can use what God has given us in history, these discoveries that people have made to, to create a better understanding of words. And as we're using words to build our theology, we're constantly improving our theology and working toward a greater understanding of the truth And given that the human mind is finite in itself, we know that we're never going to reach full, complete enlightenment in this age. So there's always a room for improvement in our understanding of our theology and of the language that the Bible is written in.
0: Amen. Yeah, that's good to hear. And that's a great summary of of a little bit of what we're setting out to do in helping people study New Testament and Old Testament uh, backgrounds, helping people study Greek and Hebrew helping people find good resources, whether they're uh, kind of a first-reach thing or a second-reach thing, or maybe just a help toward the end of sermon prep or lesson prep or or Bible study in general. And that's a lot of what we want to do. And a little bit of what we want to do on this podcast is talk with pastors, scholars, students, and more about either uh, various exegetical issues. We're about to record an episode, another episode, uh, Todd, uh, and discuss the dissent clause we're excited about that have have written extensively about that and going to kind of mm-hmm. put it in another format for people um, be looking out for that it's very, hot off the it, shelf
1: it's a real easy problem there's no there's no real controversy but it's going to be with good the yeah clause. no not at all we all are on
0: 100% the same page <laughs> there yeah um, our commitment to sola scriptura uh definitely makes us divided over other things, <laughs> uh, but it's a good commitment, um, and one we hold here at Exegetical Tools. But this, <laughs> this podcast, we want to discuss uh, on the pastoral side of things, on the prep side of things, on the academic side of things, uh, on the uh, student side of things, want to get good viewpoints good perspectives talk about good resources and I'm mostly here to ask good questions if at all possible uh-huh. so I'm trying yep. um, and I think it's good so one of the questions that I'm going to be regularly asking our guests before we wrap up an episode are twofold firstly what resources have you been grabbing lately that people ought to be looking for what tools are you using
1: that's a that's a tough question one of the areas I because it all it, you know, basically depends on what you're researching, right? Sure. So one of the things I've been researching lately has been the Apostles' Creed because I was we're going to talk about that in another episode. But I've been working through uh, creating this discipleship guide based on the Apostles' Creed. So one of the cool things about technology nowadays is that anything that's in the open domain, you can pre- you can usually find it online. So there are, as you can imagine, there are hundreds of commentaries on the Apostles' Creed. And so you can go to archive.org, and you can type in the name of a title or an author, and you can find a scanned version of these books from the 1800s, early 1900s, and they're all scanned in. So um, I've been using a lot of resources from archive.org lately. I've also got a paper coming up on the topic of the Bible and slavery and evangelical public engagement. So that's another place where I've been collecting sources of evangelicals in the late 1700s, and the early 1800s, and especially right before the Civil War period in the 1850s, of evangelicals who were mounting arguments for and against the abolition of slavery. So you being able to find primary sources of pastors, ministers, denominational spokesmen who were arguing against the abolition of slavery, who were arguing, for example, that. Um, African Americans really just didn't have souls or they were inferior or they were born into subjection as part of their punishment from God whatever it might be uh, we can go online and just find these freely available without having to go to a library and you can commiserate with me being here in Joppa, Missouri right now there's not a big library theologically there's what uh, the Christian college you're going to and their library has the basic resources, but when you when you need to find something as obscure as some reverend so-and-so from Philadelphia from 1850 in his speech, you're not going to find it. So you either ILL it or you go online. Uh, so archive.org has been huge for me lately, especially without having a, um, a big library nearby. The one other area I've been studying, we've been doing a parable series. So what I did is I got about eight books on the parables, and I've been, going, I've been using those to prepare for each sermon. One of the best resources have been Klein Snodgrass, uh, Stories with Intent. That's an amazing, comprehensive, gu- and I, I emphasize comprehensive, guide to the parables. Um, it could have been shorter. But, of course, you have the classic book by Dodd on the parables, and then you have the classic book by Eremias on the parables, the kind of two trendsetters. Um, and beyond them, you have more you have Blomberg, which is a very, very good introduction to the parables, a very balanced approach goes beyond that kind of one point tradition and Snodgrass goes beyond the one point tradition as well. So Blomberg and Klein, uh, Snodgrass, and a few others that are kind of sitting on my desk as well. and of course, again archive.org to be able to look up any uh, any works on the parables that are in the open domain. That's awesome. And then the last
0: question. What passage of Scripture have you been dwelling on lately? What's hitting you lately? What's something that you would want to leave our listeners with?
1: Yeah, one one verse is, it'd be Colossians 128, I believe, that Paul is striving to present every man mature in Christ at the judgment, mature, perfect. Um, and I think that, that's important to me because uh, obviously it was Paul's goal, and so it should be my goal as well, but... The idea of someone being whole or perfect or complete, uh, it suggests that our discipleship processes in our churches can always be more expansive, can always be more holistic. So people spend 50, 60, 70, 90 hours working each week. Is our teaching in our church building them up in their faith, not just to be evangelistic in the workplace, not just to send them in as covert evangelistic converters, right, but to actually equip them to use their gifts in a way that glorifies God in their careers, to help them think about what God has made them to do, what they can contribute to society that will be good and beautiful. So being whole and complete in Christ uh, is not simply about, I I don't believe, it doesn't just mean that we send people home and beat them over the head until they read their Bible more and pray more, right? That is one, those are two types of spiritual disciplines, and there are two ways that we connect with God. But if if our entire life is lived around our spiritual relationship between us and God and it never makes its way out into anything else we do outside of these very pietistic spiritual disciplines, I wouldn't consider that a very holistic person because they're creating a bifurcation between their spiritual life and the rest of their life. So. Uh, with this, with Fontis Press, especially in this ministry and discipleship guide series we're doing, that's one of the purposes. Is we're going to have lots of volumes on different connecting faith with different areas of life, so that we can help ministers to form disciples more holy and, and complete as disciples of Christ. Hey Amen. That's a good word, Todd. Thanks for being with us, man. Thanks for having me. Very much.